0: Hey, it's Jennifer. I wanted to jump in here quick. As you listen to this, the United States will have gotten through Inauguration Day 2021, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are now our president and vice president. While I don't know from here, speaking to you right now, what chaos has or has not ensued, here are some things I do know. Gardens and gardeners are among the people and spaces that bring us together, that connect us, direct us, nourish us, and support us all the time, which is why no matter what is happening at the top of any hierarchy, I am so hell-bent on engaging, encouraging, and empowering all of us in this network of thoughtful and intentional gardeners around the world. Keep gardening with your whole heart and your whole mind. I also want to take this moment to give a quick shout out to those of you who have had the capacity and taken the time to support Cultivating Place financially recently. I seriously could not do this work sustainably without you. I'm going to take this opportunity once a month going forward to just call out some of the names of those of you who've been able to chip in. So, thank you. Gail, Flora, Dan, Abby, Cindy, Carrie, Natasha, Eleanor, Crystal, Charlotte, Carol, Deb, Eileen, Kathy, Hazel, Jeanette, Christy, Paula, Maggie, Josh, Joe, Claire, and Nina. There are others, and I will thank a few of you each month. Thank you. I appreciate you. Now, for another Gardener Conversation I think you're going to appreciate too. Settle in. It's one of our longer ones. You might have to listen to it in stages, but it's so worth it. Mary Lynn Mack is a force for good gardens and great ideas in our horticultural world. Enjoy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Mary Lynn Mack is a Renaissance woman and leading voice in the world of public gardens in the United States today. After beginning her career in the Navy, her experiences have taken her in many directions, including 16 years in Phoenix at the Desert Botanical Garden and now as Chief Operating Officer at the South Coast Botanic Garden in San Diego. She joins us today to share more about her journey and some of her big-hearted, brave ideas for horticulture and public gardens as we move forward.
1: Welcome, Mary Lynn. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. It's great to be here. So
0: I'm going to ask you to tell listeners a question that I asked you to think about in advance of talking today, and that is, At this point in your life and career, if you had a mission statement for what you do with plants or in relation to plants, what might that mission statement be, Mary Lynn?
1: I think my mission statement would be to inspire others about nature. Because I've learned over the course of time that, especially with children or young people, that if you get if you get them to be inspired and it can come from a number of sources uh, botany, art, music, just inspiration about nature in general if you're inspired by something, you learn more about it, if you learn more about it, you respect it, and if you respect it, you advocate for it
0: so tell us as well your current professional titles and and what they look like in action each day? Sure. Because you have a couple of (laughs)
1: professional
0: titles.
1: (laughs) I guess I do now that you've asked that. Well, my (laughs) my leading title, if you will, um, professionally is chief operating officer and that's at South Coast Botanic Garden. And how I like to describe my role is the moving pieces. So in other words, um, there is a trifecta, of women who run South Coast Botanic Garden. It's myself, the CEO and the chief development officer. And my role is really to make sure that the day-to-day operation of the garden runs smoothly. And that's the plants, that's the people, that's the programs. Uh, Another title that I wear quite proudly is I'm currently the vice president of American Public Gardens Association. And I've been involved with the association now for gosh, close to 20 years. And I was really, really honored when I was asked to be part of the board because I'm I'm a real advocate for being able to create change, make change, and more importantly, open doors for others who are change makers. And I feel particularly as a woman of color in this industry for me to have a place at the table really has now allowed me to uh, focus on an even deeper passion, which is mentorship.
0: Yeah. Mentorship. Oh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful word. And it just, it comes up all the time with women in leadership roles and, and not even leadership roles at the top of organizations, but just leading from wherever they might sit in the work that they're doing. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely get more into that because I think it's a a pivotal, uh, joint in, in how our lives eventually articulate themselves. I'd like to go back before we dive into some of the professional work you just mentioned and how that, uh, They all are informed by your mission. Take us back a little bit, Mary Lynn. Where were you born and raised, and who were the people and, and places and plants that grew you into a woman who would be in these positions now?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I grew up. And I was raised by my grandparents and they were my inspiration, particularly my grandmother, who not only had a deep love for plants and a green thumb like nobody's business, but she also had a love of arts and culture. And although she, you know, didn't come from money or or prestige or anything like that, she really saw the beauty in art. And so as a young kid, I was... I think at the time I would use the word dragged because when you're 10, 12, 14, you know, it's not exactly the thing you want to be doing but she took me to the ballet, she took me to the opera, she took me to museums, she enrolled me in every class known to man. So I like to tell people I feel like I'd be a great Jeopardy champion because I can go about six levels deep on a whole lot of stuff. Um, (laughs) But you know so that planted the seed of course and then she was a gardener and my grandpa was a gardener. She was a gardener more on the artistic side she would cultivate African violets and and come up with all different kinds of of ways to grow those. And for plant people, you know, that is not necessarily one of the easier no grow, so no. An I could use her
0: actually. I, I I've tried to get mine to to bloom, and I'm I think I finally got it.
1: But okay, keep going. So she, we had them everywhere, and so I can't <laughs> I can't see an African violet without thinking about her. And mm-hmm. then my grandfather was really one of those more down to earth, basic gardeners. He was growing because he said, "Look, I haven't had a good beefsteak tomato since." Uh, I left Italy, which is where he was from. Mm -hmm. And so we always had tomatoes growing. We always had cucumbers growing. We had different kinds of apples. And so he grew for the table. My grandmother grew for the aesthetics. And so the combination of the two really opened up my my eyes and my world to to that beauty. And um, although I had different career trajectories, Every time I was in something that wasn't connected to those things, I felt like something was missing. And although I'd like to think that I added a lot of value to those particular careers, um, I kept getting drawn back to needing to have that aesthetic and that connection in my day to day. So gardens was just a natural trajectory.
0: Yeah. So you grew up in Cincinnati. You have this wonderful, you know, mentorship from your grandparents on some of what has become the most valuable elements of life to you. Tell us what are your career arcs from there? Um, <laughs> yes. you, you, go to, you go off to school. Yes. Take us from
1: there. Uh, well, I, I went to school. I, I focused on business.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: at first I thought, okay, um, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but it feels like it could fit in a number of, of, of places. Um, then the adventure bug hit me and I decided, well, gosh, I'd like to see other parts of the country. Um, so I joined the military, which was a pretty out there thing to do for yeah. a young woman, my age. Um, and it, I think it freaked my family out. They were completely (laughs) stunned and shocked. And, you know, they raised me to be pretty independent. So I went down, I talked to recruiters, I took my tests, I did all these things. Then I kind of went back home and informed them (laughs) of what I was planning on doing. So um, they were supportive, nonetheless. And um, that's what landed me on the West Coast, is okay. I, wait,
0: I'm gonna st- I'm gonna stop you there. Sure. So you you do this. What year is it? And how old
1: are you at that point? <laughs> I was 21 years old. And um I really didn't know what I was stepping into. So it was it was quite a leap in the net will appear kind of a moment. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I have seen that happen in my life. And some of the choices that I've made have been uh, a little bit of, I don't have it all figured out, but I'll figure it out when I get there, moments. And so I went into the Navy and you have to think about the time frame because it was 1982. This was a time when, Gosh, lots of things were happening in the military, some good, some not so good. This was a time when Top Gun was a big deal, and some but some of the sexual harassment stuff was happening. This was a time when they were trying to figure out what to quote unquote do with women. Uh, for example, should they carry weapons? Should they go through weapons training? Should they be on carriers? And so I came in at a time where they were still trying to figure a lot of that out. Wow. So here I am. I ended up in San Diego and um, I had a number of men who reported to me at the ripe old age of 21 who were old enough to be my dad. Wow. And white and not necessarily that keen on the fact that I was there. So I just like to make mention of that because you talk about things that form who you are. Mm. And that was definitely one of those arcs because what it taught me is to really hone in on my emotional intelligence because that was what I had to do to manage effectively. I had to really figure out people. I had to figure out who they were, but more importantly, what they needed and wanted and managed to that point. And so I will always look at that um time in my life as a place that really formed who I became as a manager and a and a leader.
0: Wow, Marilyn, that is quite a crucible for such a young person and to meet it with such astuteness is um Clearly the universe put you exactly where it wanted you to be, right? And and where where your skills were gonna um grow and shine. That's so okay, keep us going. Okay, you're in then. the Navy, you're in <laughs> San Diego, you're you are you are moving up. And so what was your position in the Navy at that point that
1: yeah. I worked in a legal office. I was a legal man. And so, on top okay. of it, um, I worked, you know in in an area where there were a lot of young people like myself who were finding themselves in some trouble, having made some bad choices. And so uh, I like to make mention of that too, because you know, as you tell your story, and I always encourage people to do that—write it down, tell it to others, like you're allowing me to do—you see those connections, boy. When mm-hmm. when you know you get to wherever you are right now in your journey. And so I was working with this this group who um, I recognized as these were 18, 19 year old guys. Who, you know, from all over the, the United States, first time away from home, probably first time that they had a real paycheck, uh, you know, all those things. And, you know, it's kind of like going away to college. You know, if you have been sequestered or maybe limited in what you were and were not allowed to do, well, guess what's going to happen sometimes? So I was able to, I think, begin my mentoring even then. Although I didn't call it that, I didn't I didn't connect that word to it. But being able to just try to get some of these young men—and I do say men because I was on a sub base and there were no women on submarines—to wow. look at life, you know, differently and really think about the journey that they wanted to take and the choices that they needed to make. So that was really uh, what I did for the entire four years I was in. And then when I got out of the military, um, I wanted to stay in San Diego like, oh, so many people do. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> um, a
0: little a little different winter than Cincinnati. Yeah. You
1: know, I love growing up in the snow, but I wasn't too keen on going back to it as an adult. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus, you know, in San Diego, uh, I I learned a whole different uh Kind of uh, area of of what I could plant and when I could plant it, and boy, it's.
0: I bet, yeah. Were you so? Were you gardening in during those four years? Had you started to cultivate a little
1: home space for yourself? Yes, I always needed a green space for myself. Sometimes it only ended up being you know containers on a patio mm-hmm. of an apartment, yeah. um, but I I used it in whichever way I could, and I always always grew something that I could cook with because that was my grandpa. So if it was herbs or, uh, you know, tomatoes were hidden. This for me, I must admit, um, found a love for being able to grow strawberries pretty well in San Diego. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. and then of course, uh, got introduced to the wonders of what to do with citrus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I remember a lemon tree that I had it actually not in my yard, but next door to me that a neighbor was very generous with and, and kind of just learned to cook with different stuff that I hadn't grown up cooking with. So um, so I always did have that. There was always that piece. There was always that art piece, too, even when I was in the military. I mean, that's when I discovered Balboa Park in San Diego and all the museums there. And so always kept that connection. That was my free time. That was my downtime.
0: Mary Lynn Mack is the Chief Operating Officer at the South Coast Botanic Garden. We'll be right back for more of Mary Lynn's journey story, which includes caring shelters for women, gospel choirs, and a substantial side journey into the desert. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Those of you who listen to me all the time may have noticed I've been starting out my conversations with a slight variation on my normal opening question. I have recently moved to asking people what the mission statement for their garden might be. This might be sort of an obvious question for someone like Mary Lynn, who is the COO of a public garden. But I think all gardens, small and large, public and private, herb gardens and forestry gardens and windowsill gardens, could perhaps use a mission statement. I came to this new query in part because of my newest book, Under Western Skies, visionary gardens from the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Coast. It has been such a great endeavor. I was so honored to have been invited to collaborate on it with the photographer Caitlin Atkinson and again with Timber Press. As a gardener and as a writer I am really interested in that intersection between our gardens, the more wild spaces beyond our gardens from which our gardens were carved, and our prismatic, fascinating, multicultural cultures. I really believe that thoughtful and intentional gardens and gardeners help to address challenges as wide-ranging as climate change, habitat loss, cultural polarization, and social justice, individual and communal health and well-being. I think you know this. I explore this here with you every week on Cultivating Place. I explored it very specifically in the work being done by women around the world in the earth in her hands. And I am super excited to share with you that I explore these concepts ever more and ever more in relation to place in Under Western Skies. This book celebrates innovative place-based gardens in deep and interesting relationship with the Western landscapes in which they're situated and from whom they take their most profound direction. It will publish on April 27th, 2021, and it's available for pre-order now, just about any place you buy your books, or you can pre-order signed copies from me at cultivatingplace.com. While these 40 gardens are based in the U.S. West, in these extreme times, the extreme conditions, and the extreme biodiversity of the places of these gardens, these have solid lessons for gardeners everywhere on how to partner with their land, with the cultures and histories of our places. This, in turn, makes for more symbiotic gardens and gardeners in tune with this generous, brilliant planet and all the lives and relational systems that make her so. And that, my friends, as we know, has the power to shift everything in a better direction. That is a mission statement for me and my garden, and I will look forward to hearing your mission statement for your garden whenever you feel like sharing it. We're back now to our conversation with Mary Lynn Mack, Chief Operating Officer at the South Coast Botanic Garden in Palos Verdes, California. We're back now for more of Mary Lynn's educational career story. After fulfilling her time in the Navy and learning through jobs in both the for-profit and non-profit sectors of San Diego, it was her realization that she needed a change of scenery that took her to the desert and the Desert Botanic Garden in Phoenix, Arizona. There, her love of gardening and her emotional intelligence for working with people and cultural institutions came together.
1: So when I got out of the military, um, again, not really sure what to do with now this experience (laughs) that I had, um, but I knew I didn't want to be in a legal office. Uh, That didn't sound appealing to me. And it was just happenstance that... um, I found a position at Cox Communications, and it was in their HR department. And I was in charge of hiring and interviewing and basically staffing up Cox Communications, which at that time was growing and not nearly the, the big organization it was right now. Matter of fact, it was privately owned at the time by two sisters, the Cox sisters, Barbara and Ann. So um, they've come a long way as well. But I decided, let me go into for-profit sector and see what that's like. And um, there were parts of it I really liked and parts of it that weren't really feeding my soul. So um, that is when I uh, decided to take a huge departure and do something that was connected more to what I was doing in my spare time. So in addition to arts and culture, well, I shouldn't say in addition, one of the things that I loved about the arts was music. And um, I sang. So I sang in a couple of different gospel choirs, and one of the things that one of the choirs did was we would sing at the uh, rescue mission, uh, both for fundraising for the homeless population, as well as something to be able to lend to their lives. And so um, they, th- at the time, the rescue mission was for, for men only, because you got to remember, again, we're talking 80s, 90s, yeah. um, there weren't, there wasn't a big homeless population of women. You know, most of the homeless were, unfortunately, uh, military veterans, yep. you yep. know, or or the mentally ill, and, but they were men. And so the rescue mission, they would feed these men and then there would be a a church service, non-denominational type of church service, some type of music, and then they would go to their cots and, and go to bed for the night. Well, what was happening is we were seeing more and more women showing up with little kids, displaced families showing up. And they were saying, well, gosh, you know, we don't even have beds for for this population what's happening and that's when the rescue mission decided you know we we got to do something about this and um i had grown to know the staff and the board and one of the board members took me to lunch and said you know uh we need to open up a women's center what do you think about doing that now i need to tell you i do not have a background in social work i do not you've heard my story right i nothing i got nothing i got a business background and military experience but here's the leap in the net will appear moment right and i went mm-hmm. sure yes we can do this
0: wow wow you are a renaissance woman i love this story
1: okay and so wow. um what happened? so at the, so we started to fundraise for, uh, for a for women's center and they said, you know, we we we'd love to open on Mother's. I think this was October, and there there were some wonderful people on the board and on their staff that were really great about getting getting the funding in to make this happen. And they they bought a seventy five thousand square foot old furniture manufacturing warehouse, and I went in there and. Just think about something that had ab- been abandoned and, and, and neglected, and that's what you got. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And we started the construction. And at the time, I thought, okay, now what? And um, all I thought is, I can't exclude anyone. And so we started to write programs. And of course, you know, what I was smart enough to do is bring in way smarter people. And people who had a background in this field, and some of them were friends of mine that that I sang with, or that you know i I volunteered with, and they were fantastic, and they they helped form what would be the San Diego Rescue mission Women and children's Center but um, at the time, I like to tell people, you know, I succeeded because of my ignorance. <laughs> Because I yeah. didn't know enough to be scared at w- of what I was doing. So I was, I was, I was basically writing a program for what really in realistically was probably four or five programs rolled into one. Hmm. Because it had I really understood you kind of focus on one area, domestic violence or drug and alcohol abuse or mental illness. And I was like, well, you know, we're just gonna figure out how to do. Enough to be able to have everybody have a place to live. And so we had women with children, and I didn't have an age limit with the kids. We had pregnant women. We had women coming from domestic violence situations and women that had drug and alcohol issues, and you name it. And it we figured it out. And um, that was, again, one of those air, or those arcs where I go, okay, uh, you know, every day was something new. Every day was a challenge. It was all encompassing. You live and breathe that kind of work.
0: Oh, you do, yeah. And it it feeds your soul, but boy, it's um, it's intense, right? It and so, were you still singing, or had that?
1: No, subsided? I was still singing because what okay. what we did, like part of the program, we 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 ended up. I, I like to tell people I elevated begging to an art form because <laughs> I never said no to anything. So case in point, there was a chiropractic office who were, they were closing down one of their offices and they go, you know, we've got this, this chiropractic equipment. Do you want it? I said, yes. And so one of the areas we made into a chiropractic area and then people would come and volunteer and there was a beauty salon Oh, we've got this stuff. Yes. And then we had a beauty salon area. And so every yes turned into a piece of this program. And one of the yeses was there was a huge space that lent itself to an auditorium chapel type place. And, um, you know, I don't have to tell you any nonprofits, you know, the, the, the foundation of their success is volunteering. And so volunteers, you know, kept this going. And some of the volunteers that came and helped us were church groups. Of every kind, Um, synagogues. uh, You know, they would come, and once a week, they would do a service, a talk, a lecture that the women would um, participate in. Um, And a lot of those groups had music elements, and so I was still able to feed that that piece of my spirit and soul with music. And um, we ended up uh, even putting together a music group with the women residents. Oh, so, that's um, beautiful. You yeah, a little bit of sister act that, again, you know, Mary Lynn decides, oh, sure, we can do this. <laughs> we can do this. Of course we can. Uh, but, you know, um, I knew wonderful musicians, and so they helped out. Right, so Yeah, right. lots, of, lots of great stuff happening.
0: Okay. So bring, bring us into like, what, at what point I know, when did I get to garden? Yeah. When did, when did your love of gardening become more intertwined with your career? Oh goodness arc?
1: gracious. Well, as I was saying, you know, this kind of work is all encompassing and, um, I realized, you know, six years in that, that I needed to turn over the reins to someone else and, and, and move it, move on. And, uh, I ended up working at the San Diego Natural History Museum. So back to arts and culture and uh, worked there for a number of years and grew their volunteer program and worked in education. And uh, that's when I decided um, I was ready for a change geographically. Hmm. And I moved to Phoenix from San Diego and I moved without a job because I figure we'll we'll figure it out. (laughs)
0: You are a brave and brazen woman. Okay. I
1: don't know. Well, those are great words. We're going to take, we're going to use those. Um, And I got there thinking, you know, I'll look into the museum. And it was a very different makeup in Phoenix than it was in San Diego. And, you know, there just really wasn't anything. But I found an, uh, an ad for a position at the Desert Botanical Garden. Wow. And I thought, ooh, okay, that's like a museum outside. We'll go for mm-hmm. it. And um, and in, in interviewed and it was a position for uh, a community volunteer coordinator. And I thought, boy, this is this is taking a couple of steps down, not to disparage or diminish the role, but you know, I had been at a different level in my career by that time.
2: Mm-hmm. But I
1: thought, you know what? I'm going to get my foot in the door. Let's do this. And I I did that. And I, <clears throat> over time, again, with great mentorship from the executive director there, um, I was able to grow my, grow my career. So I was the volunteer coordinator, coordinator, then I was a volunteer manager, then I was the director of education. And then I became the deputy director of the um, Desert Botanic Garden.
0: That is so wonderful. Now the, you know, for, for, People who might not know, it's it's one of the the one of the best desert ecology museums in our in our country, if not in our world. And
1: um, and who
0: was the executive director at that time? Well, he's
1: he he, he remains there. Ken Schutz. Oh, Ken. Okay. Yes. Okay, great. Um, so fantastic leader and a great coach and mentor because not only you know did Ken. I think see my value, see see what I could bring, but also he was very generous with his staff in making sure we were connected to American Public Gardens Association. I mean, we Uh always played a part in presenting, we went to conferences, and so he introduced that possibility to me and, and others as well. Uh, but yeah, Desert Botanical Garden, one of the top 10 gardens, uh, renowned agave collection, fantastic Mm -hmm. research and collections and, and a superstar when it, when it comes to volunteer programs and, and other things as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they have that fantastic, uh, you know, gardening program for home gardeners in their area to teach them how to appropriately grow plants of the desert, which is just such a great, uh, that's such a great like layered learning um, to bring your garden population, gardener population up to the level of, of the garden's knowledge. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So Give us the year span that you were in Phoenix and with the Desert Bot Garden, Mary Lynn.
1: Okay, I just don't want to get my years wrong because I, I do have to mention that in the year of COVID, I, I don't know if it's Tuesday or
0: right. Yeah,
1: it's so next cute. February. <laughs> so,
0: but uh, like a basic <laughs> a basic time frame.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, I was I was at Desert for 16 years, and oh so my. I've only been at South Coast Botanic Garden. It will be um, two years in January. Okay. So my career span was lengthy. So I just, I just left desert two years ago
0: wow.
1: and I'd been there for 16 years.
0: Now, at some point you become active in APGA. Yeah, I, I did. I want to share that story from our friend, Patrick McRae, oh. who, who introduced me to you and, um, and you sitting on a, a panel interviewing him for I think it was Longwood. Yes, yeah. Um, and him saying he was as a, a young white man very interested in diversity, and you as an older and wiser black woman saying, and what exactly do you <laughs> know about diversity? And Patrick having this be one of his like great like growth moments.
1: I love that. I absolutely love that he told you that story. Um, mm-hmm. because again, uh, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about mentorship. That was those are those times where I feel like, you know, uh, direct truth and constructive feedback is going to be the best thing in the world for young people such as Patrick who who have a fire and a passion and 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 a skill set to be a wonderful leader in our, in our industry. So yes, to, as I mentioned, I had been involved with APGA over most of those 16 years, mm-hmm. um, primarily uh, putting together presentations and being very active at the conferences, et cetera. So, um, you know, I, I, one of the things that I was able to do is get to know some of the great leaders in our industry. Paul Redman at Longwood is one of them. Mm-hmm. Brian mm-hmm. Vote at Denver, another. I mean, the list goes on. I don't want to start naming names because I know I'll leave someone out that has just been a phenomenal person in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but getting to know Paul and um, also, Being in charge of the conference the year Desert hosted it in 2016 allowed me to take a real deep dive into what it takes to do something like that. What best fun I've ever had. And Paul got to talking to me and introduced me to Tamara Fleming, who's in charge of the Longwood Fellows Program. And she asked if I would be on the selection committee. And I was so honored. Because I felt again that table, right, that room that we as Mm -hmm. people of color need to get into in order to truly make change. And so I have been and am still on the selection committee. And yeah, when Patrick um, went for the program, um, I I gave him kind of a hard time. It's a grueling process. It's extremely competitive. So I hope he remains proud of the fact that he he can he can keep and and talk about that title that he earned. But when he got into one of those final interviews and and talked about diversity, um, I pushed I pushed back because you know we are now at a time where people know the words inclusion, diversity, equity. But it's the action behind them. And I wanted him to really be able to articulate for me what that was meant for him as a white male of privilege and what he was going to do about it.
0: Which is which is just a good exercise for all of us, uh, to be frank. And it's not just young people with fire that need that pushback and that um, demand for articulation and precision. Uh, but it's all old people with a fire too. (laughs)
1: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Mary Lynn Mack is the Chief Operating Officer at the South Coast Botanic Garden. We'll be right back for Mary Lynn's journey story and how she believes that public gardens with the most representative of voices and leadership at their tables will save us. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, it is deep winter here in the Northern Hemisphere and light and warmth are at a premium. My houseplants are calling to me. And if you all know me, you know that I am not the houseplant parent of the year. I am working on it. I love my three or four houseplants. We are getting along better and better, but in all honesty, my money plant needs repotting. My African violet needs food, I think, but I'm not exactly sure. Hmm. But here's something I'm sure of. We're all different kinds of gardeners, and while I revel in talking about and sharing why we garden. I know exactly where to turn for the how of houseplant keeping and care, and that's to my friend Maria of Bloom and Grow Radio. As a podcast listener and perhaps a houseplant parent new or longstanding, I think you will enjoy Maria's energy and her take on this gardening life, teaching us and sharing with us far more about the intricacies of being a good houseplant parent. Here's more about her podcast, Bloom and Grow. I hope you'll check it out and subscribe for your garden podcast library listening.
2: Have you ever killed a houseplant before? I know I have. In fact, I've killed so many houseplants that I actually created a podcast all about plant care, Bloom and Grow Radio, the podcast for plant people where we learn how to not only stop killing our houseplants, but learn how to help them thrive, grow our indoor jungles, and cultivate more joy in our lives. On Bloom and Grow Radio, I interview planty experts to get answers to the plant care questions we all have, but might be a little nervous to ask, like, what the heck is bright indirect light? What is soil and potting mix actually made up of? Or what is the best way to water my plants? For me, the mind-blowing thing about plant care is that it is so much more than just making our homes look Instagrammable. Plants are amazing tools for self-care. They help us disconnect from screens, reconnect with nature and ourselves, and they remind us things like growth is always happening in and around us, dormancy is sometimes necessary, and something as simple as it's important to water yourself. If you want to grow, we've got an episode for you. So what are you waiting for? Join our community of plant friends and subscribe to the Bloom and Grow radio podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast player or listen on our website at bloomandgrowradio.com/podcast so we can all keep blooming and keep growing.
0: This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Mary Lynn Mack of the South Coast Botanic Garden in Palos Verdes, California. Mary Lynn is a Renaissance woman with a Renaissance woman's career path. While in Phoenix at the Desert Botanical Garden for 16 years, Mary Lynn became far more involved with the American Public Gardens Association, a national organization convening public gardens, their philosophies and policies across the country. Mary Lynn believes that public gardens are poised to help save us all. Will you just remind listeners, um, what the APGA is, and and summarize its sort of mission in in a nutshell, as well as Longwood.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, to talk about Longwood, um, again, we we spoke about Desert Botanical Garden. Longwood Botanic Garden is another large garden, and when I say large garden, it uh, you really kind of look at budget, you look at um, program, you look at acreage, and there are kind of a top 10 and Longwood is definitely up there. They are a, an amazing garden. Um, and have been again leaders not just with American Public Gardens Association, um, but for for the Longwood Fellows program. I mean they that's been around for a while and that that was our leadership program, like when we wanted to to build and and recognize leaders that can just take on the mantle, take on the baton and carry forward public garden work. Yeah. Us, the very specifically of that. yeah absolutely very
0: specifically public garden work and that is sort of where APGA right. when you say this was our leadership program you mean them what what would you say you know can you give a quick summary of what the American Public Gardens Association sure. their
1: mission absolutely right? well you know it's got first of all a 75 year track record of convening and educating the the public horticulture community. And the best way I can describe APGA is that we connect the field of public horticulture to communities. And we are really stand as the the organization from which public gardens can get a variety of resources for best practices um, for both their institution as well as professionally. Um, we're advocates. Where APGA protects natural heritage and kind of ensures the future of public horticulture through programming and advocacy. Um, we really champion, you know, a, a unified voice for public horticulture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's that's and the best way I can put it.
0: And that's a great way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you one more question just to open that up a tiny bit more. Why is that important, Marilyn? Why are public gardens mm. important in this time and our place?
1: Public gardens are going to save us. <laughs> because when you just think about what's happening in, on our planet, in our world, um, green space or the lack thereof, climate change um, food deserts um, kind of a, a a spiritual vacuum illness, sickness, disease the commonality the the the, the thing that grounds us no pun intended is it, are these nature spaces are these green spaces are these? areas where you can go and feed your soul and feed yourself (laughs) Um, and public gardens. um, And I emphasize that word are going to be important because that says that they they need to be open, accessible and available to everyone. And not just opening the doors and welcoming people, but opening the doors and having everyone come in with their diversity of thought and their perceptions and their experiences. And that will grow public gardens into what they truly need to be.
0: And that that last statement there really gets to um, the beginning of an exploration of my, my next question, which is... You know, you you talk about uh, Longwood Garden and you talk about, you know, the Desert Bot Garden. These are gardens whose historic origins are grounded in white privilege, wealth privilege, and exclusion in many cases. How are public gardens going to save us and teach us and model for us a better way forward in those spaces, Mary Lynn?
1: Well, one of the ways that they're gonna have to do it is to have a period of self-reflection, which I'm really proud of saying a lot of them are doing, and we have been doing it, and we've been doing it prior to this year. Um, There were, about seven years ago, I was approached by Casey Schlar, who was the executive director of American Public Gardens Association, who saw the need, felt the need, heard the need, from our constituents about diversity, inclusion, and the lack of that happening in our spaces. So we formed a a committee made up of a variety of folks that at that point, quite frankly, had just expressed an interest and a a passion for wanting to do the work, to come Mm -hmm. together to start to form uh, how we were going to be able to be the resource to teach and show gardens of how to be more inclusive, more diverse, and, uh, and open themselves out truly to their communities. So it's now the IDEA committee, and IDEA stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. It has grown, Um, it in itself is diverse, and I'm telling you the people that are at the helm now are wonderful and they're gonna take this to a level that is needed, wanted, and, and gonna really make big changes. I was really, really proud of the fact that APGA kind of really stood behind this in a meaningful way. It wasn't just words. Case in point, um, our conference a couple years ago in Washington, D.C., diversity was the theme. It was threaded through everything that we did. And I can't tell you how many leaders were actively engaged and have made significant change. I think about inclusion, and I think about De- uh, Denver Botanic Garden, where mm-hmm. Brian Vogt at the helm, you know, walks the walk and talks the talk. And you know, he, he one of his mottos is a garden for all people, and he means that. So I see the change; it's happening. But you know what? It wasn't without pain. It wasn't without painful conversations, uncomfortable conversations
0: yeah but one of the things i am so proud about in it for this industry um is the fact that that work really has been on the ground and and germinating across the country in gardens that are 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 in it um for a, a good many years and that put i think public gardens in a really Healthier position. I'm not really sure how to say that, but this year of 2020, with COVID, with social justice reset, with Black Lives Matter, with economic, you know, distress and confusion, it put our public gardens in a place to be models and leaders and places of refuge and solace in um, for everybody in this time, and that made me really proud. Mary Lynn, as, you know, a person who's not in a public garden, I just, yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, it's like, I, again, that that commonality at the end of the day, mm-hmm. first of all, boy, COVID, um, while it is, um, you know, there are higher degrees of of the issue in brown and black communities, it still was quite an equalizer, and at the end of the day, you know, again, we were one of the green spaces at South Coast Botanic Garden that were able to stay open throughout the pandemic. We, we take, we, we're really, really, really humble and proud of that because we were able to be here, truly, truly be here in, in the purest sense of the word for folks who just needed some degree of normalcy to be able to be outside, you know, take a breath of fresh air and, and connect.
2: So that gets us to South
0: Coast Botanic Garden. We have finally gotten there. Tell us about this wonderful Uh, garden. And you've been there two years. And I love that you are part of a trifecta uh, of women leading this public green space. Tell us about this garden and its
1: history. I love it, too. Um, Now, the garden itself has been around for 60 years, but I like to tell people: in many ways, we are just starting out. Um, we are under the umbrella of the Department of Parks and Rec, the County of Los Angeles. Um, but in terms of a botanic garden, um, that really started to take shape when our CEO Adrian Nakashima came on board ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it was it was operating much much more similar to a park. Mm -hmm. But we have really made some strides in looking at the collection in new ways, uh, looking at public programming and bringing in things that we know will draw a diverse audience and really, really serve the community uh, that we're in on the peninsula really well. Um, So, so go ahead.
0: Just describe the collection a little bit for people, like the size of it, the focus Mm -hmm. of it, and then and then describe that community
1: that you are serving. And I'll I'll ask you that again as we go along. Sure, it's eighty-seven acres, and um, we have a fantastic Morton Fig collection. We have a Magnolia collection. Um, Right now, we're we're slowly kind of working our way a Dahlia collection we're working our way through looking at the landscape differently and and looking at designing more permanent exhibition spaces that showcase some of this and quite frankly, bringing in new things. Um, We have a couple of different lawns, um, but right now it it really is in in its infancy stages in terms of what what we're looking to do. Um, But the one thing that I don't wanna forget is our main distinction. And that's something that we haven't really talked about a great deal, but I think is a point of pride. And that is we are built on a landfill. Wow. Exactly. So way back when we were were an open ore mine, then it became a landfill for years. So many of the residents remember South Coast as a place where they dumped out their their trash, and so to turn trash into treasure and turn something like that into a botanic garden, I wow. think is, is a point of honor and distinction. I always yeah. tell people, you know, we can't be embarrassed about our trashy past. We really have to lead with that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, you know, there is some really just powerful hope in that transformation
1: story absolutely for all of us
0: all of us and our and our entire of uh, collective consciousness and culture right you better believe oh. it
1: i mean sustainability at its best and yeah. taking something that nobody wants to 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 look at to be around you know it's not great for the earth and turn it into what we have is amazing um when i think of what's underneath us. It's, it's, it's pretty phenomenal.
0: So tell us about that community. You, you are on, um, just tell me the peninsula name again.
1: Right. We are in uh, Palos Verdes Peninsula. And it's an interesting community because we, we sit uh, and are surrounded by a number of pretty diverse communities. I mean, we have Rancho Palos Verdes, Rolling Hills, which are, you know, pretty affluent places. Um, We're right up the hill from Torrance, which has a a diverse population and and a mix of, of working class folks and businesses. And then we're not too far away from Long Beach. With its own, you know, sense of community and, and makeup. So we have the opportunity to draw from a lot of different places. And then we have the beach communities, Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach, of which many of our members hail from. Um, so we're pretty lucky in the fact of where we're perched. <laughs> and um, you know, it we can draw from a whole lot of different um ideas. You know, we have a large uh, Asian population and uh, as a result, you know, they come and they've helped us with things in the past, like our cherry blossom festival, because I am a real believer in, you know, you want to be authentic with what you lead with. And the best authenticity is to go to the people to tell their own story. Um, And so we Hopefully one day post-COVID where we can all do programs and events again. You know, I really am looking forward to finding out what those stories are that I don't even know about in, in these diverse communities and having them be told. Right.
0: And you know, the 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 garden is is really a, a beautiful sort of comprehensive um space. You have Meadows, you have a native plant garden, you have a children's garden, you have a grass garden, you have all of these different collections across the space. And you know, you mentioned that you were proud and humbled that you had been able to stay open throughout COVID. And you know, you were in one of the big hot spots on the, the west coast um, range yes. of COVID. Get, give listeners a sense of what that meant to you and and what you saw mm-hmm. it mean to people who were able to come and visit especially in those you know those early darkest scariest days not that they aren't still but we're we're a little more accustomed to this in our lives and um and I I I feel like you have seen this really poignant
1: impact on visitors Marilyn I have you know and first of all you know we were scared too And I remember the three of us sitting in an office listening to, you know, Mayor Garcetti and and Governor Newsom and uh, Los Angeles County Public Health, trying to figure out what they were going to tell us to do. And uh, what we kept hearing throughout the first couple of weeks of of shutdown is it's important to be outside, take a walk you know, go outside for your own mental and emotional health. And we thought we're outside (laughs) and we're 87 acres. And that's when the operation piece of me kicked in along with, you know, my two colleagues and we quickly were able to put together um, response plans and logistics to be able to do everything from day one safely. It was crazy because, I mean, we're talking, okay, signage and websites. And uh, we literally uh, built a ticketing program in three days to be able to do timed tickets. Um, it's amazing what you're capable of when, you know. <laughs> when you <you're, laughs> have to do it, right? Yeah. When you have to do it. And we were able to quickly pivot and do reservations with small numbers um i i i had actually advocated to have a ranger department uh for a number of months prior to all of this happening and it just so happened that i hired my first group of rangers and we were in the throes of training three they'd been hired 3 weeks before this happened And I remember sitting in the office with them going, okay, we're going to now quickly turn to, you know, chapter 26, (laughs) because we've got to go into what to do during a pandemic. And then they quickly became those monitors that were able to make sure people spaced six feet apart Mm -hmm. and wore their masks and did all the things. And we had, you know, uh, uh, sanitation schedules and wiping down everything. It was crazy. But... What I like, and, and I, I brought this up with a couple people, I, I likened us to a speedboat versus a cruise ship. Right. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, um, you know, we're, we're a large garden by budget and acreage. However, as I mentioned, you know, still growing almost that gangly teenager stage where we still have lots to do. And that's a speedboat. We didn't have a whole lot of stuff, and so we were able to pivot yeah. very quickly, yeah. whereas cruise ships that maybe had a huge staff and lots of programs and a big volunteer department, that's a lot harder to make the changes happen. And so I feel we were lucky in the fact that we were in our infancy and in lots of these things and we just quickly flipped it on its head and opened up in a different way. And people were coming in thanking us, so appreciative that they had a space. I remember when school, you know, became remote. You could set your watch that at three o'clock, I would look out my window and you would just see (laughs) these these parents coming in with these children and they would get to Palm Circle, which is kind of like the beginning of the garden. And they would just drop the kids and the kids would take off like rockets in this open space where they could just run and blow off all that steam, you know, and energy. And then you saw the parents take a deep breath Mm -hmm. through that mask. And be able to kind of know that their kids were going to be safe, but they had this place to come to. So it was just, it was, we got as much as we gave watching that.
0: You know, I, I think you have, you have answered this just in, in some ways with that exact, um, story you just told us, but maybe there are other things you would add to what, you know, what are your greatest joys in, in this work, Mary Lynn, Mm. um, and the impact and, a, and um, asset that y- you are in other people's lives with it.
1: Oh, wow. Um, so many. <laughs> it's, it's, a jo- it's joyful work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, you know, you take a page from nature that's changing, that's adapting. And I feel like public gardens, they just have all of this opportunity in front of them, I do. I mean, both the palette of the space that I work in and being able to dream and be creative and bring in all of those things about aesthetics and art and culture and and plants that my grandparents gave me and apply them to a space that's not mine, but that can be shared with everybody, it's amazing. What what an honor, what an opportunity to go to work every day and see the possibilities and the empty pallets and be able to not just do that kind of selfishly for yourself, but for everyone else. Um, so that's the joy. The joy is being able to be at tables and in rooms where I can bring up and in others, uh, young people of color, who are discovering, in some ways, this um, this work for the first time, and and where they can be leaders wherever they stand is amazing and an honor and a joy, and just always learning. Boy, I go, I learn something even at my age, new every day.
0: Every day, yeah. Uh, as a gardener, I, I do too. I I think it's one of the great gifts of this part of our engagement, uh, in the world and with the world, the, uh, you, you still have a home garden. Do you want to share anything about
1: your home garden with us? And it's joy well, to you in this time. <laughs> I do have a small space in California. I had a larger space in Arizona. <laughs> um, but I have Gosh, I'm looking, I'm looking at my stuff right now. And one of the things that I, I'm growing are some miniature citrus trees. I've got orange, grapefruit, lemon. We'll see what we do with that. I grew to love agaves, aloes, succulents in general, uh, living in the desert as long as I did. So that's always going to be a part of my life and so I've got some wonderful uh, specimens that I actually got at South Coast from our our retail uh, and propagation place. And um, right now, that's it. Because, you know, it's interesting. It's it's kind of like uh, that adage about the shoemaker's right. kids. <laughs> I have 87 acres to play with. And so, unfortunately, right now, my my home garden space is not as big as it should be. <laughs> but I have an orchid that bloomed for the first time, yeah. and I'm immensely proud. I know that's a your, big deal. Your grandmother orchids. would be proud. I think uh-huh. so. Um, and so I'm I'm looking at her right now and uh <laughs> yeah, she's uh she's doing great. <laughs> you know, and it's gardeners by and
0: large are are acutely aware of how valuable even you know a, a window with the right light to grow something, let alone mm-hmm. a small garden, mm-hmm. has been. But 2020 has pointed this out with even greater um greater emphasis that, uh, a garden is, is a true luxury and a public garden that is truly accessible, uh, and open to us is a great luxury for our entire culture. And I just thank you for the work you're doing and, uh, really very honored to have you on the program today.
1: Oh, Jennifer, this was wonderful. I mean, I have not had to tell my story that much much detail in a long time, and it was nice to revisit and remember where I came from.
0: Mary Lynn Mack is a Renaissance woman and leading voice in the world of the American Public Gardens Association and public gardens in the United States today. After beginning her career in the Navy, her experiences have taken her in many directions, including 16 years in Phoenix at the Desert Botanical Garden, and now as Chief Operating Officer at the South Coast Botanic Garden. Join us again next week. When we lean into the spirit of the season and the traditional Jewish festival to be Shavat, or New Year of the Trees in conversation with Karen Float with the Mitzvah Garden at the Central Reform Congregation in St. Louis, Missouri, the New Year of the Trees seems like a perfect celebration in this time of dormancy just before the sap begins rising in most living things looking towards spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast is listener supported through the support button at the top right hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. For more information and fabulous pictures from Mary Lynn's life and her work at the Desert Botanic and South Coast Botanic Gardens, and with the APGA, head over to cultivatingplace.com this week for the show notes under the podcast tab. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, make sure to share it with friends, neighbors, and other gardeners. That's how these conversations grow. Our on-air producer and engineer is Matt Fidler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.